Hi, this is Dee Wallace, and you're listening to the Then Is Now podcast. Hello and welcome to our special filmmaker series that we're doing here on Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. On this series, we talk to directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects people, basically anybody that's behind the scenes in filmmaking so we can get their insights into their craft. This series is being created especially for Patreon subscribers, so thank you for supporting the show. And please get your friends to go to our website at havenpodcast.com so they can click on the Patreon link and get these exclusive episodes. As always, you're in for another great treat. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go! Play and have fun now! Joining me once again is my co-host, filmmaker Chris Esper. How's it going today, Chris? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Excellent. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So looking forward to talking with today's guest again. Well, for yes. the first time, but I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with another amazing guest, I guess is what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, as am I. Awesome, awesome. All right, we're going to get started here. For over 25 years, our guest has been designing and building specialty costumes, creatures, props, and so much more. He's a director, producer, costume designer, production designer, animator, visual effects artist, concept artist, art director, mask designer, sculptor, and one of the top special effects guys in Hollywood today. He's worked with such legendary talent as Rick Baker, Stan Winston, Bob Kurtzman, Howard Berger, Steve Wang, Matt Rose, John Carl Buechler, and Katsuhiro Suji, whom he helped get into America, among many, many others. You've seen his work in such films as Aliens in the Attic, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, Terminator Salvation, Tron Legacy, the remake of Robocop, R.I.P.D., the original Predator. Gremlins 2, Iron Man, and Man of Steel, just a small list from a large career. You've also seen his work on TV in shows like Altered Carbon, Scream, and Supergirl. In 2013, he teamed up with Steve Wang to create Alliance Studio. He also has founded other companies, including Eddie Yang Studio, Alliance Studio, Ludigear, Symbolic Arts, and Deity Creative. He once won second place in a makeup contest judged by the top people in the industry, including the legendary Rick Baker and Dick Smith. He's one of the first artists to incorporate 3D printing into costume and creature production. In 2018, he designed and fabricated the futuristic armor suits for Netflix's Elang, the Wolf Brigade, which won Best Costume Design at the 55th Grand Bell Awards in Korea. Not just a rock star in special effects, he's also made medical face shields and masks for healthcare workers who need the equipment 
on the front line of the coronavirus pandemic, which he considers the most important job of his life. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the show a man who was literally pushed into the industry when a friend at age 15 shoved him through the door of a special effects lab, Mr. Eddie Yang. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> We're so glad to have you here, man. So I just wanted to follow up on that intro. Can you tell us about how our mutual friend Simon sort of shoved you through the door and literally into your career? Yeah, yeah. Um, I basically, we were very young. We didn't even have our driver's license yet. We were, it was summer vacation of uh, high school. Simon was one of my best friends, um, even to this day. Um, and my father uh, dropped us off uh, in North Hollywood at Don Post Studios. Don Post was uh, uh, popular for creating all the Halloween masks, all the high quality kind of heavy latex masks at the time for Halloween. Yep. And uh, we called him up and and asked if we could go to his studio. Uh, my dad dropped us off. We walked to his studio. We talked to him. And uh, I remember there were some other studios around the area as well. So we looked up in the phone book and we found the ad address and we walked over to Makeup Effects Lab. And I'd been reading about these guys in Fangoria Magazine and everything, Alapone, Doug White. And Alapone was in the front office. I was a little bit shy to go in. We hadn't called them or anything. And Simon literally pushed me. <laughs> and I guess uh, I went through the front door, made some noise. Alapone looked up and said, hi, can I help you? And <laughs> quickly introduced ourselves and that's where actually i met howard Berger, who wow. um, is the owner of uh, cam b right now that do all the walking dead and narnia movies and howard actually gave me the tour um around makeup effects lab at the time and he actually showed me a prosthetic appliance which i'd only read about um they were made of foam latex at the time i never even touched foam latex i just read about it in books and how you mix it and all this stuff and he showed me an appliance and i touched it It was like oh my god this is so soft it's different with what i pictured and he was great he showed me literally everything and we exchanged numbers and he said he was going to pittsburgh to film uh day of the dead so wow. he was going to go work for tom savini and do day of the dead so he actually had a roommate at the time named bob kurtzman and I met him as well. Uh, same day, he said, just go right around the corner. It was John Beekler's studio. Met Bob Kurtzman. Bob Kurtzman stayed in town. So we actually hung out uh, while Howard was uh, out of town filming Day of the Dead. So, um, so yeah, long story short, that's <laughs> that's the uh, pushed me into the doorway of Makeup Effects Lab story. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you were, you were into, you know, making, were you making masks like in your mother's oven? We'd grow yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. So very early on, I think second grade, I got this book called uh, Movie Monsters by Alan Ormsby. It was for children. And in the back of the book, they teach you how to do makeup with simple, you know, eyeliner and stuff that your mom might have or something and warts and a paper mache Frankenstein head. <laughs> and um, I had already done all that as a kid. And every weekend or whenever I had time after school, Went into my mom's makeup kit, you know, practice drawing, making myself up as Dracula, werewolf, and all this stuff. And then um, I think about 12 or 13, I started experimenting with masks. There was a great article in a magazine called Cinemagic by Kirk Brady, and it showed you how to make a full head latex mask. So I started sculpting. I got Tom 
Savini's book Grand Illusions and it showed how he made everything and all these different books at the time on prosthetic makeup, stage makeup. And yeah, um, we had moved to a house where there's a extra garage space and I wanted to do foam latex. My dad uh, got in his truck and helped me. You know, we look, I looked up in the, the newspaper at the time called the recycler and found an old oven because you have to bake foam latex and brought it home and <laughs> put it in that extra garage space. I made a studio there. That's awesome. Learn how to sculpt. And yeah, and just started, you know, experimenting, making masks and sculpting and so on. Uh, all out of the garage. <laughs> That's amazing. Was there any film or films that influenced your love for effects? Like you saw a film, you're like, yeah, you know, that's what I want to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the first actual taste of it, even the hint of it was famous monsters, Lon Chaney with his makeup tackle box, so to speak. And right. it had all the makeup in there and, and showed like all these faces coming out of the tackle box. And I call them man of a thousand faces. Right. Yeah. And just what he was able to create. That was my first inkling into, wow, this is so cool. And then of course the Alan Ormsby book. And then, yeah, I would watch horror movies, but I was still scared of them at the time. So I wanted <laughs> to see the effects, but when, it came to the gore and stuff. I cover my eyes. So one of those was American werewolf in London. Yep. Yep. And, same here. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know, 11 or something at the time. And then I, I wanted to see the werewolf transformation. I knew that. And I just was so obsessed by that. I, I cut the uh, newspaper article or just the, the show times. <laughs> Every time I saw that werewolf, I cut it out of the newspaper. I had like hundreds of these images of that werewolf design. Um, but when it, he started attacking victims all bloody, I'd like cover my eyes and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. that was definitely one of the many movies. Uh, the Thing, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, of course, Star Wars, uh, multiple times I uh, saw that. Um, snuck, we used to snuck, sneak in tape recorders, audio tape recorders to try and relive the movie and stuff like that. But yeah. <laughs> influenced by just about everything and then of course on television um all the classics uh the wolfman and frankenstein and all that stuff all the universal uh monsters loved loved those so and there was a show called elvira yeah mistress of the dark out here yeah and she would play all those movies so you know definitely when i wasn't in a movie theater i was watching those on television so that's amazing. Uh, yeah, surrounded by surrounded by that stuff constantly. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so was I. I think I have the um the Dick Smith book as well. Um, oh wow, yeah. And uh yeah, it was funny too because you mentioned, you know, American Wolf in London. I did the same exact thing. Like before we went and saw the movie, my father happened to pick up a life magazine and there was this big spread on him yes. transforming. And yes. you know, looking at it in the magazine, I was totally fascinated. But when it came to the movie, I think I did watch most of the transformation scene, but then I covered my eyes, like you said, during <laughs> when he was killing people and stuff. And so there were points in that movie that I never saw for years <laughs> until <laughs> right. No, there was a there was a movie called The Incredible Melting Man. Yes. Oh yeah. And same artist, Rick Baker, had done the special effects. This is earlier in his career, and. My cousin, who had literally just flown over from Taiwan, thought it was like uh, a comedy for some reason. <laughs> so, 
he took me when I was in third grade to go see this movie, and it was like the goriest movie, yeah. even by today's standard. It's it's like <laughs> realistic melting guy that's just like bloody. Oh, and yeah. he, I remember he tore this nurse's face off. I remember there was a yep. beheading in it. They tore a guy's head off. <laughs> and I was traumatized. I was like <laughs> freaking out in the movie theater. And many years later, when I eventually worked for Rick Baker, I told him about it. And he just had a good laugh about it. But, uh, That's hilarious. That that was, yeah, that was definitely one of those eye-covering movies. That, <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about the prop that you got as a gift from Rick Baker from American Werewolf in London? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, um, he gave me one of the hands because I, I had told him um, one of the first things I ever sculpted was the hand and directly from that Life magazine. Oh, wow. It was like in the corner, it showed the changeo hand and like the nails coming out. It was like yeah. a little image in the corner of the article. And I had purchased clay and that was like one of the first things I ever sculpted, um, which I think was sculpted actually by a guy named Tom Hester that worked for Rick. And uh, I guess him remembering that said, hey, I have one and, you know, take it. It's, it's like one of my prized possessions to this day. So, um, awesome. but yeah, it's it, unfortunately, it, foam, foam latex deteriorates, so it was a foam hand, and I have to keep it in the dark because the sunlight, the UV lights, kind of accelerate the deterioration. So oh, wow. right. Can't really show it off. <laughs> but, oh, my God. Would you say Ray Harryhausen was also an influence on you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but much more Rick. I mean, Ray Harryhausen was a huge influence like on Rick, on Rick Baker, and, oh, and yeah. those movies I didn't have the patience for stop motion. Of course, I love the designs of all the creatures. Clash of the Titans was amazing. But um, I liked more of the design of the creatures and just seeing them. I just didn't have the... I was written into all kinds of special effects. But yeah, I tried stop motion and stuff and, and didn't quite have the patience for it, but definitely respected him as a designer and what the technology was at the time, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I was much more the Rick Baker guy, Dick Smith guy, Stan Winston, Rob Bottin, because mm -hmm. um, all those were were so popular at the time and all the, the art that they were creating. You mentioned the movie Clash of the Titans, and you worked on the remake, correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I worked on it when it was going to be directed by a guy named Steve Norrington, um, who directed, I think, well, one of the, the Blade movies, and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, yeah. And he was up for Clash of the Titans. So I did a lot of um, designing with him. And then the studio uh, changed it over to uh, Louis Letier, I think, right. eventually directed it. And all those designs were done by a good friend of mine, Aaron Sims. So, so yeah. Uh, but I loved working with Steve Norrington because the, the stuff we did were it was the crazy ideas. It was, it was so out there, very exotic ideas he had. So that was a lot of fun uh, when it was being developed by him. So, Right, right. Yeah. Uh, we'd love to hear the story of, of um, how you got Katsuhiro Tsuji into the, uh, into the country. Oh, oh, um, yeah, we, we, let's see. After I graduated high school, I uh, got... I got a job opportunity to go to Japan and work on a film called Momotaro. And it was a, with a great friend of mine, Matt Rose at the time. And he had already been there for a few months and he was working on this, this film. It was kind of like a captain EO 
type movie. Oh, okay, yeah. And it was yeah, it was for a kind of like a theme park. From what I understand, it was like one of the longest bridges in Japan or something. And so they had developed this park there, and they had this this creature in this movie, and like I said, very much patterned after like a Captain EO type thing. And that was my first experience uh, in Japan ever, um, and with a close friend of mine. So that was amazing. Uh, I was there for like a month and a half, and um, just experiencing the culture. I, I literally fell in love with Japan. It was like my most favorite place, meeting all these incredible artists over there. And we were working for a lady who's like the Stan Winston of Japan, if you will. Oh, wow. And her name was Etsuko Agawa. And she had this company called Makeup Dimensions. And they were literally just starting. She had just started. She had worked in America for Rick and, and other people. And then went back to Japan and started her own studio and school and so on. Um, so I was called back um, to Japan after my first experience. And actually, Rick was a consultant on that show, too. And he came to Japan. And I think that, that might be like the first or second time I'd actually even met Rick. Um, and when I went back to America, I actually ended up working for Rick and uh, for, for quite a while, actually. Um, but she called back for another project called Sweet Home, uh, which was a horror movie. And it was directed by, as she called us, Steven Spielberg of Japan at the time. Hmm. named Juzo Itami. Um, he had done several award-winning films, Taxing Woman and uh, Tampopo. And if you're into cinema, um, these are you know pretty... They, they were hailed as um, very incredible films at the time. Right. So he was doing a horror movie, and he was into makeup effects and stuff. They, they actually uh, called in Dick Smith as a consultant. Oh, wow. And... Uh, Kazuhiro was a huge Dick Smith fan. Um, Dick was his mentor, his friend, his father figure. And at on this project is when I first met Kazuhiro, and he was just hired as you know, like lab tech, makeup effects guy, nothing special. Um, his his portfolio at the time was really good. Uh, when I saw it, we hung out all the time. Uh, every weekend, you know, we worked late at the studio and then afterwards we go eat and just develop this incredible friendship and bond with him. And when I left to come back to America, I, I think I stayed for like two months or so on Sweet Home. And uh, we worked on several of the actual effects together. And it, it was great because, <laughs> I mean, I, I always proclaim that I know nothing about animatronics, like the robotic stuff and, right. and all that. Right. He, his attitude was just, oh, let's just try it. Let's just do it. So we go to <laughs> this this department store called Tokyo Hands. It's the most incredible. It's like Home Depot on uh, level seven. <laughs> it was like uh, Crate and Barrel on level six. It was <laughs> enormous. And they had everything all in this one place. And we would go there, get supplies and all this stuff, and rig together like a fully robotic cable-controlled, like, the head-to-toe dummy of um, Juzo Itami, who was also an actor in the film. Um, and at the end, he gets, like, burned up. So we had this burning dummy. And oh. um, But uh, that's where I met Kazu. And 
we were so close. We we grown so close to each other. Literally, when I had to leave, we were like crying. You know, it's like I couldn't believe <laughs> I had to go back home. And you know, that's how close of a bond we formed. Eventually, Kazu would visit the United States. You know, just visit us here and there, and and uh, met another um, high school friend of mine. That's also a mutual friend of Simon's and Chris O'Flaherty. And eventually, I'd moved my. Now we're talking. I'm in. Uh, I guess te- technically college years or after um, college years uh, and already working professionally, but I had a, a new studio in my friend Chris's garage and his mother said, yeah, if you guys clean out the garage, you know, you can use it for whatever you guys want to do. So I would hang out at his house all the time hmm. and Kazu would visit there and got to know Chris and Simon as well. And, We'd hang out and do, you know, whatever 20-year-olds did at the time, <laughs> in and out, go to the beach. And so, yeah, throughout this time, I'd kept in touch with Kazu, and Kazu eventually became a teacher, I believe, at Etsuko School, worked on more movies for Etsuko. And then one day, I was working at Rick's already, and he sent uh, a video of this, uh, I think it was a gelatin makeup, of an old-age makeup. And it just literally looked like some old guy. I was like, why are you sending me a video of this old guy? (laughs) And I couldn't believe it when he showed the picture of the guy before, you know, before he'd put the makeup on. Just super young 20-year-old guy. It was just amazing. And so Kaz literally had made a leap from what I'd seen in his work in Japan to where he was at now. Hmm. And to me, it just blew my mind. And I, I brought Matt over. Like, you got to check this out. My God. And we're watching it at Rick's studio. Huh. And so we pulled Rick in. I said, Rick, Rick, you got to, if you're ever going to sponsor anybody or get somebody in this country, most incredible artist, you got to do this guy, this guy. This is it. So because um, we, we continue to write each other and talk to each other and I had already worked at Rick Baker's studio for many years, so I was at least trusted by Rick, and um, we'd have several conversations about uh, his business and and how we can improve it and stuff like that. So, so I had Rick's ear, and he would he would actually take me seriously, which I couldn't believe. <laughs> um, so yeah, he he started the process and um, eventually sponsored Kazu to be here, got his green card and all that stuff, and then. I think one of Kaz's first films was, I think, Men in Black and then Mighty Joe and then every Rick project on afterwards. And it was it was great because Rick didn't have to be on set at four in the morning. You know, Kazu would do a lot of the makeups and start doing the stuff. Rick would just kind of like do the test makeup and show everybody how it should look and show Kazu how he wanted it and so on. And so, you know, Kazu just continued to improve his skills and thrive at, at Rick Baker studio and got close to everybody and, you know, made, made some incredible friends. And we all knew Kazu one day was just, was going to win Academy Award. We just didn't know when. (laughs) And it was kind of disappointing for him because he had, he had helped Rick apply on several projects in which other people who had helped Rick had won Academy Awards along with Rick. Um, but those got nominated, but didn't win for some reason. And so we're like, oh man, you know, I can't <laughs> believe this. And of course, Kazu went out on his own, uh, and won it legitimately on his own. And I think that that was kind of even, even sweeter than, you know, having 
trailing along with Rick, you know what I mean? So, right. Uh-huh. But yeah, that's, that was the story of Kyle. So, Which yeah. film did he win it on? Uh, recently, um, it was the, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Now, the, um, the one with Gary Oldman as Churchill. Uh, oh, yeah. Was it 1914 or? No, 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 no. Um, Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. um, That was his first Academy Award. And then second was for Bombshell, Charlize Theron, which was just a year or two ago. Okay. Yeah. That was his second Academy Award. Wow. Um, So, yeah, he's going to be unstoppable as far as just innovating and and, um, progressing makeup effects, you know. Um, he's he's one of the only people that can do it realistically as far as uh, making somebody look like somebody else or aging them with prosthetics and not so much digital. So he's one of the few people that can actually still do it right, right. realistically. So That's awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely have to try and get him on the show here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. That's awesome. So I wanted to ask you about the Giver from 91 you worked on that with steve wang and and screaming mad yeah. george and it had a great cast yeah. i mean jimmy walker michael berryman mark hamill i remember that when it came out i think i i uh i can't remember if i saw it in the theater in boston but i definitely caught it on video when it when it was released what can you tell us about that uh, yeah i'm even finding out the the popularity that it has and how many people watch it as kids and stuff there was a whole facebook group dedicated to that film and getting props from it and and recently, I, I had actually made uh, a model kit so of, of one of the main characters, and, and it never got made, but molds were made and all that stuff. And this this group, one of the guys contacted me and said, hey, can we can we get that going? Because we, we know a lot of people that want it and, and so on. So the resurgence of it and the popularity of it, I was actually surprised by that it's still around. But yeah, that was... Um, done that was one of the first films i worked on before i worked on uh, at rick baker's studio and uh matt rose i had met um at a baseball game uh that rick was having for his studio and i was actually mowing the lawn of howard burger's house right so howard <laughs> burger i mentioned they, yeah they all live in a, a house together and i was like the gardener but i couldn't be more happy because you know, after after school on weekends, whatever, I'd go mow the lawn, but they would pay me way more than a gardener should have been paid so I could buy materials and stuff. And they had a studio in the garage. Nice. And I would do stuff there and they would mentor me and all this stuff. Um, but uh, Matt Rose had introduced me to his roommate, Steve Wang, at the time as well. And Matt was an incredible person just as far as he, he's the kind of person like I met him once, mentioned to him. I was making a Joker mask of the, of the comic book um, character, the Joker, but I was having trouble finding green hair. The next time I saw him, he had this bag of green yarn. He, looked, he said, like, look, I think this will work if you just comb it out. I was like, oh, my God. And he just like he re- remembered that just <laughs> like a, a tiny conversation. You know, uh, that was the type of person he was always giving uh, most incredible, humble guy. Nice. Um, but he introduced me to Steve Wang and Steve Wang was also Asian, like me. I was like, oh my God, there's a Asian <laughs> kid doing this. And Hale, they, they were already very well known in our industry because they had won this contest. Um, I think it was kind of making fun of Siskel and Ebert at the time who were <laughs> film critics. And, yeah. 
always yeah. uh, hated horror movies at the time. So right. they kind of made, <laughs> made disgusting images of them. You know, there was a, this, a fat one with ooze pussing, purple paint dog. <laughs> there was a skinnier one yeah, with wrinkles all over the face and, and again, pussing warts and all this stuff. <laughs> and it was a contest that they had in Fangoria magazine and they, they won it hands down the most amazing masks ever. I remember that. Yeah. 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 Cause when you were describing it to me, I'm like, I've seen a picture of that. And then when you said Fangoria, I'm like, Oh, duh, that's where I saw it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so they were known for years as the Gould brothers before they even came down to LA. And then I remember Howard saying, hey, the Gould brothers are coming. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> they hated that. They hated that moniker. It was just like, you know, it's it's Steve and Matt. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, when they came down, I mean, they showed off their portfolio. It was just insane. I mean, just these sculptures, the design sense, just everything just kicked everybody's ass and kicked the, the level of quality up, up a notch, uh, several notches, actually. So... When I met Steve, I already kind of knew who he was, but I hadn't seen his portfolio. So he showed me his portfolio. I was just like, oh, my God, you are a god. This is, like, incredible. <laughs> you're, you're the guy I want to be. You know, it's just that inspiring. Yeah. And he was another super humble guy, always open uh, to talk about techniques, critique, all that stuff. So we actually uh, got really close, uh, became really close and hung out a lot. And um Steve had uh, filmmaking aspirations as well, so right. I would help help him make um, one of his movies called Kung Fu Rascals, which uh, right. yep. predated predated The Giver. So I'm, I'm leading up to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Kung Fu Rascals was something where I believe we were working on Gremlins already. We we're both at Rick Baker's studio, and Rick on weekends uh, we would film. Uh, Kung Fu Rascals, and he tasked me with making two of the war god suits that that show up at the climax of the film. Right, and that was I loved that project because he basically just let me do whatever I want. Nice. <laughs> and um, I'm like, oh, my idol is trusting me with with this this job. It was it was like so cool, and he was happy with it at the end. So that that was even more satisfying. So um, Guyver came around and I think there was a break at Rick Baker's studio and I, I talked to Rick and said, Hey, can I help Steve out with this project? It's only for a few months or whatever. So everything was cool. And it was his first kind of big directorial debut along with Scream Mad George. And um, he hired me to kind of run the creature shop when he left uh, to, to do his directing duties. And cause he was there, when we started designing and stuff. And then just before um, we started full production, he took off to do um, all his directing duties. Um, And he kind of gave each artist a character. So I was tasked with uh, this character called Lisker. And I think Jordu Shell had just come to LA. He's another amazing artist. Um, He was kind of, fresh to LA at the time. Um, and this was one of his first uh, big films that he worked on. Um, and there's another artist named Moto Hada. And I forget the creature's names, but the, it was like an insect creature that Moto did with Mark Hamill. Yeah. I think Jordu did like this elephant looking one. 
And then Jim Cagle, who was an incredible sculptor, did the one that uh, uh, Jimmy, oh, I forget Jimmy his last Walker? name, Dynamite. Yeah, Jimmy Walker. Uh, Jimmy Walker. Walker, Jimmy yeah. Walker. Yeah, yeah. he played um, Striker. I think Jim Cagle did his character. So we all had different characters. And Steve had actually sculpted the MacGyver himself um, and was doing his directing meetings and all that stuff while he was doing that at the same time. Pretty incredible. Nice. And then, um, yeah, so that uh, I remember so specifically with Lisker, uh, we all had these little plastic heads that we would design on. There was no computers at the time. So we'd sculpt them in clay, little maquettes and stuff. And um, I'd done several different designs and sculptures. And then he saw one. He said, hey, this one's kind of cool with the bulging forehead. You know, why don't you continue with that that theme? So I did. And he would say stuff to me like, oh, this is your this is your predator or something. I did predator <laughs> when I was 20 and, was this, and you're about 20. So, you know, give it your all. That was his pep talk. <laughs> so. So yeah, sure enough, you know, every, I gave it everything I got and yeah. So Lisker was my, my creature sculpted the head, sculpted the body. And that was Michael Berryman's character, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember it was one of the first creatures to, to be finished with the sculpting process and we were going to mold it. And one thing that happened, uh, it was literally coated, ready to go in the mold the next morning. And it fell over the entire sculpture, the body sculpture. Oof. Uh, what had happened was that the base of it, uh, whoever constructed the base, uh, the screws only had like an eighth of an inch of the screws sticking into the wood. So oh. it was being wet so many times, it just couldn't take it anymore. The weight and toppled over. Oh. Uh, I think it, it hit Brian Wade or, or maybe Moto in the shoulder or something Ooh. even. Uh, he was okay. But the sculpture was just demolished because the leg came apart. Uh, it was supposed to come apart, but the the fall had you know taken the leg off, and everybody's just grabbing the sculpture, trying to save it. <laughs> <laughs> like fingerprints all over it. Like, okay, this isn't gonna get molded tomorrow. Uh, but, wow! Wow! But ended up you know fixing it up, and it got molded last, and all that stuff. But um, but yeah, it was, it was an amazing, fun, fun project. And we went to set after all the costumes were completed and body suits. And that was another fun part of it. Late nights, uh, all these young kids. I remember the uh, first AD was getting so pissed at us because everybody took uh, streaks and tips and, and <laughs> whatever that comes in a spray can and like graffitiing all, all over the walls. I don't know. So one person <laughs> did it then everybody thought it was okay. So it was like mob mentality. And they're like, you guys stop it and, and uh, <laughs> causing lots of mayhem another thing i remember was asao goto had made a lot of background suits and he had made it with the feet attached to the main part of the suit and so i, I made a mental note that if you can if you have the time always you know leave the feet unattached because what would happen is to get the actors into the suits you put you rub baby powder all over them you know so there yeah. wouldn't be any friction and they slide right in but then they would sweat you know the suit was highly you know just very taxing right so what over time what you would get is this cold mush at the bottom of the suit because the feet didn't come in (laughs) a mixture of sweat i don't know how many different people sweat and baby powder (laughs) and it was just this this, like mashed potatoes you know at the bottom (laughs) Uh, just yeah it's pretty much as gross as you could 
possibly. But, uh, uh, there were some other interesting stories like that. But, um, but yeah, just fond memories of working mainly with the people, the crew, and is super late nights, all nighters, which we could not do at this age for sure. <laughs> That's but um, I look back and just like, wow, how did how did Steve do that with his directing and doing the creature effects? And he just the guy just didn't sleep, right? And you know, Scream Mad George was just hilarious. I, I love that guy, uh, and I, I it was all done out of his studio. Hmm. And a lot of the workers were Japanese, which through his connections and stuff, and they they came to LA with dreams of just doing makeup effects and creatures and all that stuff. So got to meet a lot of really cool young artists and stuff through it. So and Scream at George was born in Japan. Is he Japanese or was he American or yeah. both? Yeah, yeah, he's he's Japanese. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he came to this country and to do special makeup effects. He had a band. He, he's, he's what we would call the surreal influence, like Dolly and stuff. So oh, things okay. that, uh, he wasn't like more of a, a traditional designer where like uh, you'd make a creature and it's like patterned after, I don't know, reptiles or amphibians and have scales all over it. And the paint job was a Steve Wayne paint job at the time. And also his stuff was like, you know, I put a foot on top of a guy's head and the foot was the mask <laughs> or, you know, a guy making the heavy metal sign was another one of his masks with the, the two middle fingers, the, the ring finger, and the middle finger, Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, cross over my thumbs and then the pinky and the index finger, are like bullhorns. So he made masks like that. And then you would look through where the index finger and the middle finger are uh, just really surreal, weird stuff. So uh, that's what he was known for his style. That's cool. I remember noticing when when the Giver first came out. I remember thinking right away that the it looked like it was influenced by Ultraman or Jet Jaguar or some combination thereof. You know, uh, absolutely. I mean, Steve was a huge fan of Ultraman and um, all the Japanese movies and and Common Writer and all that stuff. He would always love the most obscure, crazy uh, Japanese shows for sure. So yeah. that. I'm sure that came through. Spectre Man. And, and at the time, yes, exactly. That and like Jackie Chan and what was going on in Hong Kong at the time. You know, oh, yeah. He's, he's kind of like, you take all those films and filter it through him. And that, that's probably, I would say, where his influence came from. Nice. That's awesome. When it came to Kung Fu Rascals, uh, that was a remake of a Super 8 film that uh, Stephen Wang had done, right? Well, no, Kung Fu Rascals. There, there's no remake or anything like that. that Kung Fu Rascals is Kung Fu Rascals. No, right, but uh, I think I read somewhere he did like a Super 8 millimeter version like years ago. Yeah, no, that, that is it. Kung Fu Rascals oh. was shot in Super 8. Oh. Wow. <laughs> oh. Yeah, because it was, you know, cost effective at the time and, and he had seen the post process and thought, yeah, I could do this in Super 8. And just done through volunteers, just everybody he knew called favors in, shot, oh, God, I don't know how long it took, but just the climax sequence with the suits that I made, that was like, I counted 13 times, 13 weekends we went to El Matador Beach to, to film it. Um, and all the other stuff was just filmed on weekends after work and so on. So it, was, it probably took months, if not years, to complete. And wow. then, uh, yeah, the, the post-production process, the teletransfers, any whatever technology was at the time. Yeah. Uh, he thought it looked good enough, and yeah, eventually he sold it. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, now you got to tell us about the time where you, for that movie, you borrowed some naked corpses from KNB. Do you remember that story? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know who. I personally wasn't involved with that. I was more like an extra and all that stuff. But I, if it's if it's what I'm thinking of, with the horseback riders. Uh, yeah, yeah. They they. Had, so we were filming at the end of I think it was DeSoto here in the San Fernando Valley, and the freeway and the, the road ends, and then it goes down in this uh, I don't know thirty thirty foot deep like ditch kind of thing, and there's like trees and a lot of foresty stuff, and uh, there there was a scene that required a dummy body, and so we were all dressed as ninjas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I think me and Johnny Psycho went up to the car to go get the the bodies, and they were in plastic bags and stuff. And pulled it out of the trunk, lugged it down the the steep hill, and then yeah, some horseback riders came up, and some people were, uh, no, actually they didn't. They were like across the ravine; they didn't come up to us or anything. So somebody saw us, but we didn't even know anybody saw us. <laughs> and then uh, the story is the. It, soon there's like a chp helicopter that lands and a guy comes up and it's like, yeah we got a report of somebody dumping a dead body <laughs> out <here. laughs> and they're like what the hell and no no we're filming a movie showed him the sun oh, okay <laughs> that's what happened but yeah you you get these stories all the time being a special makeup effects guy i heard people coming back from set you know with dismembered heads and yeah <laughs> God, who told me? I think it was maybe Mark Showstrom. I might have it wrong. After filming, they had like a decapitated head and they were like drunk or something. They're holding it out of a car window <laughs> down Hollywood Boulevard or something and eventually got pulled over. <laughs> of course. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It stories like this all over the place. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What was Dick Smith like? Oh, Dick Smith was was great. Just as far as his openness to people, I mean, his studio was in his house. And whoever would write him a letter and just say, hey, I'm going to be in Larchmont, you know, can I visit the mecca of special makeup effects? And that was his, his basement. I mean, thousands of people probably went through there, young artists, you know, just through that house. And you got to see the basement. So I was in New York with a friend of mine many years ago. And sure enough, I wrote him a letter. He wrote back. I couldn't believe that. And he's like, yeah, when you're out here, look me up. And so I called him and said, I'm here. And just amazing. He he picked us up from the train stop and took us down to the basement. And you just you start seeing you know, the big head from Altered States was hanging on the door. Oh, wow. This tiny little room where they did all these movies out of the molds every photo was exactly how it seemed just um he had the the ghost story head there the linda blair head there all the all the stuff was was there i was just like freaking out oh my god um but that's that's just shows you his generosity right um i would say he's, he's very scientific his mind works like a scientist just very factual knows so much about everything um the vitamins you should take uh, coenzyme <laughs> q q10 or something i'd never heard that before and he had <laughs> talked about it and wrote about it and said oh you should be taking this you should be taking that um that was his health thing i remember 
because I, I started investing in stocks and stuff when I was younger, and, and Rick remembered that I invested. So Rick said, oh, Dick Smith, this is before 2000, it was like 1999. He said, oh, Dick Smith has this new le- newsletter about uh, that he clipped from investing. He, he wanted me to give this to you. And it's about <laughs> the upcoming Y2K crisis and stuff and, and what you should do with your investments and all this stuff. So he was he had his hands in everything and it, was, it took the same approach, scientific approach to everything. He was interested in so many different things. Um but yeah, just you know, very serious kind of guy. And most of the people in this industry were so young and yeah. more jokesters and stuff like that. But he, he he was much more like the serious guy. And towards the end end of his life, he had started forgetting things, which is very sad. And, and yeah. Rick Rick and Kaza were like right by his side. Um, there's this makeup artist named Jill Rockout who doesn't get enough praise because she literally took care of him, like like it was his her own father. And she she's a another makeup artist, and um, yeah, just looked after him and made sure people didn't take advantage of him and, and all this stuff. Right. But, um, but yeah, an incredible. I, I was just lucky enough to meet him. And get to talk to him and learn from him. So, well, his his vitamin regimen must have worked. I mean, he lived till what ninety two, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure his his health regimen. Uh, I'm sure he had studied up on everything. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was quite quite old when he passed away. He led a lived a good life for sure. That's amazing. What can you tell us about, you know, when, when digital design started to come about, I, I read somewhere that you had some trouble learning the concept at first until uh, Aaron Sims pitched sort of a digital concept to Stan Winston and then it sort of clicked for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so when The Abyss came out, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, I mean, we were, as makeup effects artists, we were kind of shaking in our boots. We were just like, oh my God, this is, right. this is the end for us, right? The yeah. writing's on the wall. Um, cause every time something came out, we were just like, oh, but they can't do, um, whatever translucent skin yet. And then, you know, Gollum came out and like, oh, damn. <laughs> and we're like, oh, they can't do hair yet. Right. Mighty Joe Young came out, you know, and we worked on Mighty Joe Young. We we're like, look at the hair. Like, oh my God, that doesn't look too bad. Uh, so we're like, just, okay, this is an eventuality. It's going to happen. So, um, yeah, my good friend, Aaron Sims, we both had. Uh, rooms at Rick Baker's. We, he gave us like our own rooms to, to work out of at the studio, and we were like best of friends, and we hung out every day, every weekend together. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna. He, he started using Photoshop, and actually, Rick started using Photoshop. He was the first one, hmm. and he would show Aaron Photoshop, and then Aaron started learning it. And I I hadn't taken the digital at the time, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And then uh, Aaron uh, bought a, a computer. And I didn't even own a computer at the time. And he uh, he got a copy of Soft Image, which was the animation software that they used for um, Jurassic Park. Uh, they used a combination of Alias Wavefront and Soft Image, which later became Alias Wavefront became Maya. And Soft Image uh, made this thing called XSI. Oh, okay. And they used a combination of, of the two tools. And back then, also, you had to get like a Silicon Graphics computer, which was like $50,000. And the program itself was like twenty grand, so we're just like, oh my god, I'm never going to learn this. And, and you but said then, you you hadn't even touched a mouse up until that point, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> never even, never wasn't interested. Didn't my my logic was, I could move a piece of clay 
in a second with my thumb where I got to like click on 20 buttons to get it to do the same thing. You know, that was, that's right. what I was thinking, <laughs> but the computer prices were coming down and, uh, and software prices as well. So Aaron bought himself a tower for like five grand or something and then installed soft homage. And he had a friend, uh, that was helping him too. He had a mentor that was uh, working at this studio called Janimation named Greg Punchatsk. And Greg came from uh, the prosthetic world, just like us. And then he eventually transferred over to digital and became a digital artist. So he was explaining things to Aaron uh, using the same terminology, you know, from makeup effects and say, Oh, you do this, this, this. And so uh, eventually what happened is I, I dove in, I saw, I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do this. And I looked at it as just like going to the gym, you know, yeah. uh, for a few hours every day, I'm going to sit down and do this or for 30 minutes even. And at lunchtime at Rick Baker's, I had a setup there. And I would also go over to Aaron's house uh, twice a week to, to learn and we just have fun and like whatever. And then I'd have the horrible experiences of I'm working on something for days, hours, and the computer freezes up. Oh. I lose all my work. Wow. See these damn computers, they suck. I, you know, it's, it's so pissed. <laughs> I haven't quite grasped the concept of it of the whole thing yet. And then yeah. one day I was at Rick Baker's studio, lunchtime, and they had just upgraded Soft Image and said, We're calling it XSI now. We're moved all the buttons around so you can't find anything. <laughs> and the whole interface looks different. I'm like, God oh. damn, these these not only is my computer freezing <laughs> up, I don't know what to do, but they're changing it right after you learn it. It's like, this just doesn't make any sense. Right. And then shortly after that, I'm like, I wonder what this button's for. Because all I was doing was sculpting in the computer, right? I was using it as a sculpting tool and right. making models. And I said, hey, there's a button here that says camera. So I clicked on that. And that's the day that I had the epiphany. And it was just like, Holy crap! This is a this is a movie studio. It's not for sculpting. Huh. And I had learned some basic animation. So like, I wonder if I can animate the camera. And sure enough, you do a dolly shot. And oh, right. there's a button here that says lights. It's like all these different type of lights. I'm like, oh my god, this is like Universal Studios in software. <laughs> <clears throat> that's when it clicked, and that's when it started getting fun. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna get a tunnel. I'm gonna. Uh, run the camera down it like like the end of Star Wars, you know. Yeah. You know <laughs> then I started doing all this other stuff, and that that's the day that I remember that I got bitten by the bug and I finally understood it. Um, that's and then I never looked back and and just I was obsessed with it like Aaron finally. And this was after a year, you know. So yeah, <laughs> I think well, I think even like Phil Tippett was the same way when he was doing Jurassic Park. And they made the switch from deciding to do stop motion for the dinosaurs to doing right. di to doing digital. So you know he took a bit of a hiatus. He had a nervous breakdown, but then uh, he found a way to incorporate stop motion techniques in doing the animation, and you know became exactly. it became what became what's now known as the dinosaur supervisor, which kind of became a meme, but <laughs> but, uh, but nonetheless, it's uh, no. So that's great. You were able to adapt. Yeah, yeah. And what I learned that was so cool about the software is somebody like him who understands animation and movement, it translates directly, you know, but it's just so much easier. So instead of having to do everything by hand, the computer will 
not only do what you know and take your basic knowledge that you've learned all your life, but it just makes it easier. So any DP that gets involved with a software, they will have lights that are just like movie lights with settings that are just like the movie lights with camera settings, just like a movie camera. And for sculptors, you know, same thing. There's this new software called ZBrush that is literally like sculpting in clay. Wow. They even make, go as far as coloring it to Roma clay, to Chavant clay, to wed clay, the, so that you're not alienated by it and it encourages the artist to continue being the artist. Yet you're using a tool that's very sophisticated. Right. And I, I love how these software designers think and how they're, they're really progressing everything. And the thing, the unfortunate thing or fortunate thing is that if you're an old timer not willing to learn or transition over, it doesn't matter even for the industry because you're growing a new generation that only know this software. And now there's thousands of them all over the world that are incredible artists that have picked up this medium. So it's like, if you don't run and catch up, you know, you're kind of left behind, but you also have this wealth of knowledge, which is a shame if you've been sculpting for 20 years of your life and you don't transition. Um, not not to say, you know, you can't still sculpt in clay and still do all that stuff, but it's a digital world, you know. So if you're gonna do commercial art right. and not fine art, you know, you wanna keep up with the tools because the clients are gonna expect you to do stuff that you can't do in clay if that takes too long or whatever. Right, so, right. You know, it's interesting, Chris, that you mentioned I didn't know that Phil Tippett had had a nervous breakdown because yeah. of the changeover. Was that was that endemic in, in the whole industry? Was that happening across the board or, or at least to some degree? To some degree, I mean, at least in this case, uh, um, I think it was Dennis Murin from ILM. He uh, he did a test with the dinosaurs in uh, CG. You know, they saw it, and uh, actually, the funny, <laughs> the ironically, the funny thing was Spielberg went and you know told Phil Tippett, "Hey, we're gonna go with this animation uh, instead of stop motion." Phil Tippett said something like, "I think I'm out of a job," and <laughs> Spielberg goes, um, "Don't you mean extinct?" And that ah. became a line in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I heard that story too. Yeah, yeah. So, Eddie, I mean, from your point of view, were you seeing that? Were you seeing people being very, very nervous about their Oh, future? yeah. Absolutely. I mean, people would joke about it on the surface, but everybody knew in the back of their minds, you know, what was going on. And then um, this other guy named Roger Borelli, he was in the mold shop at Rick Baker's studio. He transferred over, got a job doing digital and is still doing it to this day. Hmm. Um, Aaron, obviously... Uh, so Rick had a layoff, right? And um, the first layoff he had, and this is after like decades of steady work, you know, we were all shocked. We we're just, we didn't know what to do. You know? Right. Uh, we always had this safe haven, this job, safe job. Aaron was ready. He immediately took his computer stuff and uh, had an interview at Stan Winston's shortly after. Uh, Stan was much more progressive, if you will, and, and uh, was a little more open to using digital technology and kind of could see what Aaron was seeing. And pretty soon, Aaron was like the lead designer at Stan Winston Studios because the computer renders look so photorealistic, it's hard for a director not to take it seriously and look at that versus the pencil sketch. You right. know what I mean? Um, I've had directors tell me, just, just draw something out on a cocktail napkin, you know, what they're really saying is, I don't want to pay a lot of money. Just give me an idea. I can, I can interpret. Right. 
But you do that, and then you have a computer rendered image that's fully colored that looks like it's taken a still out of their film. They're not even, <laughs> they didn't even notice the pencil sketch. You know I mean? <laughs> so using that mentality, that's what Aaron was doing. He was cranking out these things like crazy because with digital, it's just like copy paste or change some variation or you can change the color in seconds and cranking out all these designs for AI at the time for Spielberg's AI. And it just blew everybody away. And that became the norm of how to design. And you could use the files that you use for your designs to 3D print. You know, and that, that technology was uh, being widespread use in the film industry, just, just starting to get some use. And Stan was, um, was at the forefront, you know, experimenting with it. And um, eventually I was still called back to Rick's for a few films. And I think I stayed another two or three years. And that's when I was doing my lunchtime, uh, my lunchtime exercises with, with a, the software. And I'm like, right. If Rick has another layoff, you know, I, I need to be ready just like Aaron. So uh, eventually he did. And I took my computer. Uh, Aaron said, hey, why don't you come over to Stan's? So I was at Stan's for like uh, four years, maybe four or five years. And um, I was lucky enough to be one of the main digital artists on Iron Man. And they were going to, they said, Hey, we're going to do all this digital. We're going to print the entire suit and all this stuff. And it would be, it would be the first digitally printed suit uh, for a film. And uh, yeah, we, we did everything digitally, just uh, working with the designers. Um, Phil Saunders sat right next to me. He was one of the main designers at, over at Marvel. Adi Granov, they, they had them both come to Stanwood's studio because this was the first Marvel film, I believe, and there was a lot of writing on it. Right. Um, and they they both sat right next to me, and I, I had a crash course lesson in car design because Phil comes from the car design world, and it, it was so uh, informative, educational. Um, and, yeah, the whole Iron Man suit was created in, in the computer, I have a funny little story about it that not a lot of people know, but now maybe a lot of people will know. <laughs> was this about how you had to figure out a way to measure Robert Downey Jr. without actually being with him? Oh, no, no, no. Oh. Um, no, no. He, he came in. I, I met him a few times. So, yeah. No, he was he was totally open. and We had all access to him. He's such a humble guy. Uh, really sweet guy, actually. Very, very approachable. Um this is more about so we're designing right and i've I've already spent weeks on this project and we're, we're nearing the end of uh completion on the digital suit and we're kind of posing him in, in badass poses and stuff and doing renders of him and all this stuff and i walked over to my friend's computer and he had the same my, my iron man model that i've been working on it was a group effort there was like three or four of us i was kind of the main guy doing it but um a lot of people contributed and we traded parts around but I walk by his computer. I'm like, oh, why does he look so skinny in your monitor? <laughs> and then he immediately said, oh, crap. Let me go look at your monitor. And we discovered that my monitor was not calibrated oh, no. correctly. <laughs> which means the actual Iron Man suit is too skinny. Because <laughs> <laughs> the director, every time John Favreau came over, the producers, you know, our supervisor, everybody would come over. They'd look at my monitor and they'd approve it. It's all that's great. Phil Saunders has been looking at my monitor. Everybody from Marvel has been looking at my monitor. 
So what we had to do is we kind of covertly, because we didn't want people freaking out. We, we knew how to fix it and we didn't want to cause people to just go crazy over nothing. So what we decided to do is we figured out how far off the monitor calibration was and estimated, you know, on a X and Y axes, how much we should increase the, the size, the thickness of him. And so, okay, all right. So we kept it just between me and my immediate supervisor and Shane, who was running the show. Hmm. Shane was one of the legacy's main guys. And we fixed it, right? So we, we widened him. Then all of a sudden we didn't realize, you know, this is the funny thing that about science, right? <laughs> he had so many circles on him, like his center thing. Everything became elliptical. Now everything was an oval. Oh, his ankles had circles on him. His uh, shoulder had like a little circle joint on him. Of course, his center chest thing was a circle. His ear was a, had a circle on it. And yeah, everything became elongated. We're like, Oh, damn. <laughs> so we quickly, amongst the team of five modelers, said, hey, guys, this is priority. Uh, can you make this back to a circle? And some, guy, some of the guys were, I just finished this. And this, this was perfectly circular. Like, just do it. Just, just please. Just do it. And we had it all fixed within a few days. And nobody knew. Nobody was the wiser. So. It's a, it's a little insight that nobody really knows about. <laughs> so when you're working on that file, that specific file, is it, is it a file that's on a shared server so everybody is sort of like uh, Google Docs? Everybody can affect yeah, yeah. it all at once? Yeah, not at the same time. Basically, it is on a server, but when somebody's done with it, they can pick it up and continue. So, oh, okay. yeah, so basically if I finish roughing out the foot, I can say, hey, can you – sharpen all the lines or something and then they'll pick up the foot from the server or something like that okay so but i mean we fixed it so fast it's like nobody knew nobody even mentioned it and it, it was almost like a non-issue non not even exciting until until the, the whole shoot was over and then we start telling people and they're laughing like oh my god that's what you guys <laughs> you must have been sorting it out yeah, yeah. It's it's a funny story that incorporates science. So it's just like, oh yeah, it's when you stretch out circles, they become elliptical. Right? So, wow. But, and uh, you used a three D printer on that, right? Was that the first? That was the first time it had been done. Yeah, technically, uh, uh, as far as I know, it's the first uh, suit uh, used in a film uh, that was three D printed, first head to toe. So, like RoboCop, I believe it was sculpted in clay and cast and fiberglass and they body shopped it to make it all shiny and then remolded it you know and, and but it all started with a clay sculpture hmm. um w with that even as talented as those guys were you know there's still indiscrepancies whereas when you do something digitally you can say okay i'm going to mirror the right size so now it's exact mirror and fully symmetrical 100 percent symmetrical uh suit right um whereas robocop I don't know. If you had a chance to look at it, you, you might detect something here or there. I don't know. But those guys were equally so talented. Probably not. But with the computer digital technology, yeah, you, you have the ability to, to make everything so precise. And I wasn't even sure at the time. I was kind of testing out the, the computer itself. And I said, okay, well, in my computer model, I can see that I have whatever, in, in one-eighth of a space between Robert Downey's temple and the fiberglass uh, 
um, sh- a helmet of, of Iron Man. And of course, when the pieces were done and cast, I made sure to check that. And sure enough, yeah, it was like I had an eighth of an inch of room um, to let let them have some space in there. So yeah, you can design extremely precisely, wow. uh, always having the comfort of the actor in mind. You know, That's so cool. and yeah. So, so when you print that out, is that the final product that we see on the screen, or is it a, a flat color and they put digital stuff over it? So usually when they, they print it out, uh, even today, there's still some minor lap lines. So uh, if you're not sure how a 3D printer works, think of your regular printer and the thing goes back and forth, left and right, left and right, right? Yeah. Now just imagine that the ink has thickness to it. So you're always you're going up and down as well, right? So right. Like on your printer, if your printer's printing a circle circle it just keeps going back and forth back and forth but now also up and down or if you will the z-axis and it will create thickness so that's a printer so every time you do that though it's a layer and you get these microscopic lines in there so you still kind of have to body shop it a little bit although very soon if not already they're going to have printers with much finer detail and you're not going to have to do this step Hmm. but yes they so what they did was they would take those parts sand them primer them, body shop them, then make a, a rubber mold off of them and then cast out fiberglass parts. So the fiberglass parts were the final suit. Or if it was for a stuntman, they could cast a urethane part that was softer and wouldn't hurt the stuntman. You know? hmm. So that was the kind of the process of what's done. So in terms of using the 3D printer, um, was it is it true that it was um, Alien Outpost, uh, aka Outpost Thirty Seven, that you kind of decided that as long as you had the three D printer printer with you, you could do anything? Yeah, that would that was another interesting situation because um, the guy that was the supervisor on Iron Man, his name was Jabbar Rasani, and he uh, is a digital effects supervisor. He's won a couple Emmys, worked on Game of Thrones, and real close friend of mine and. Uh, he wanted to direct. So Alien Outpost was the first film that uh, that he was got a contract to direct for. And it was going to be done in Johannesburg, South Africa. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be 10 weeks there. He, he chose me as his production designer. And um, I was totally humbled and just... Because kind of... You know, I've, I've done a lot of the effects stuff already, you know, kind of know how things are made. I was kind of thinking, what's what's next for an artist, you know, right. that, that does all this stuff. So, like, I guess kind of production design where I can help design everything in the film. So he knew that and uh, he chose me and he uh, said, yeah, this film, I think, is happening. It's real. We finally got airline tickets in our hand. I was like, OK, here we go. Ten weeks in Johannesburg. Um wow. So he had written, and they were still working on the script, as they usually do on films and stuff, and adding scenes and doing stuff. And uh, some of the stuff they added, we, we couldn't do because we didn't uh, have the facilities to do it in. We did have, um, actually, we did have Graham Nightingale's studio. Uh, he was a local effects artist. And I would go there every day and help construct the props and all that stuff. So I'm like, well, technically we could, but we just don't have the time to sculpt stuff and all that. Then I'm like, well, I wonder if they have a printer here. And we found out that there was a university not too far away from Johannesburg that had a 3D printer. 
Hmm. So we contacted them and we even sent them a sample and they sent a sample back. And then Jabbar and I were like, like, oh my God. <laughs> Some of these things that he was thinking of adding in the script, now he could. Like a, a bionic hand that he wanted in the film. There's this weird prop that the aliens used that was added. There was, uh, he wanted a helmet. The, the aliens to have a helmet so you wouldn't reveal the full alien head mask. And all that was made in Johannesburg. And I, I would model it, 3D model it on my laptop. And then um, we sent the files over to the university and I sent it back and it was, it was great. So that was the first time that I thought, man, this is, this is so convenient. And I'm sure on future productions or, or I, I had heard rumors that, you know, this is what 3d printers were made for is like military parts. And if they're in the desert of Kuwait or something, they can print out parts that, that can fix their tanks and so on. Wow. Um, and here we were using it, to you know create movie props that we we couldn't otherwise do so that's amazing um, yeah the, just the power and how how creative you can be um the power of technology just still amazing and um i, I love how creative you can be with it you know that sounds like it's going to be like the um the great grandfather to like the replicators in star trek mm. absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's total sci-fi stuff, especially if you, you see a 3D printer in action. You know, just this this thing coming out of nothing. <laughs> it's yeah. like there there are these printers now that it, there there are many different kinds, right? So there are there are ones that build on a plate, and the plate will move up and down, right? And as the plate moves down, you know, it, it's like a hot glue gun depositing plastic or whatever. You can right. see that happen. And there are other ones that are like. It's coming out of a vat of resin, a liquid resin. It's just it's being pulled out of there. Now, there's these ones with, yeah, a little bit of resin in it. It's almost dry, and this thing's moving up, and it's pulling this part out, and it looks like it's pulling it out of thin air. It's just crazy. So It's unbelievable. But, oh, my God. Yeah. The future is now. <laughs> yeah. So one of my favorite movies I, I got to ask you about is a Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, and, and how did that work in terms of digital for you? Oh, that was um, that was my first uh, digital film oh, okay. that I worked on as a digital artist. And um, so, like I mentioned before, if Rick was going to have another layoff, because Aaron had left, that I was going to kind of be ready to jump into the digital world. And sure enough, before, before I had gone to Stan Winston Studios, um, I just wanted to try my hand at it. So I, I put together a reel. Um, and I'd sent it to this guy named Kent Secchi. Kent Secchi was the, uh, basically the project manager over at a place called Pixel Liberation Front. And they were known for making um, the animatics, the previs. So if you have a complicated shot in a film or a complicated sequence, they always go to previs first, which is pretty much like digital animation. And you animate the entire shot. You even have a mock camera, a camera guy sitting on a camera showing you how the shot will be accomplished. Um, you have the set built or whatever, if it's a complicated camera pull. But, it, you know, obviously if it's like a car that's flipping and doing this crazy stuff and it's all digital, um, even the digital guys use the previs as the sketch. Hmm. And they'll, they'll literally, now they know exactly how many frames the shot should be. They know where this car is going to flip to. They know where the camera should be. So that's what Pixel Liberation Front was known for, was um, doing previs. 
but for captain sky captain they got finished shots to do and they needed to assemble quite a big team uh, very quickly so kent saw my work and he knew about my practical effects background as they call it yeah and he was like they hired me on the spot he's like i don't care if you know the tool i know you have an eye and you've worked in the film business and that to me matters more than anything because you can learn the tool and you already have basic knowledge of, of the software so i was like oh my god okay so this is so cool i didn't realize the transition would be that easy <laughs> so <laughs> so i i'm there first day on the job it's just crazy it's, it's your brain's working in a way that it never has before so when i'm doing sculpting or whatever designing you know, your arms moving, your brain. I can think of what I'm going to do this weekend. I, I'm thinking of other things and I'm just like creating without even having to consciously think. In a digital production environment, at least for me, um, trial by fire threw me right in the middle of it. And holy crap, just the amount of information you're fed. Every scene, it can't be an easy scene number for some reason. It has to be like FN6523 is a scene number yeah and another wow. shot would be gn224 hey eddie did you work on fm uh 863 last week <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh well we need you to grab that and we need you to start working on gn356 and i'm just like holy crap <laughs> and then they have this whole procedure for how you're supposed to render something so technical it's like make sure your ray trace shader is set to this make sure your focal depth is set to this. Make sure you're doing um, this many uh, render passes. And this, and it was just a constant attack on the logical side of my brain. <laughs> and by the time I was done with the day, I was so exhausted. I couldn't remember where my address was to drive home. It was that <laughs> exhausting. It was so exhausting. Um, but I'm, I'm saying for somebody like me who came from practical effects never never had to remember numbers in his life right <laughs> uh, to, to transition into this environment and it was super high pressure because they're trying to get shots out and yeah. you know you would leave the computers to render overnight so you kind of had to get everything set up and all that but i must say after after a month or so i mean i, I did transition well into it but i was literally getting headaches so it's just crazy wow uh, and so did you do any design work on sky captain or was it just doing the the you know digital drawings and stuff yeah yeah no ma mainly for sky captain it was we were in charge of the flying fortresses oh, okay. so uh, those were the shots that pixel liberation from so everything was designed already um i mean we kind of did little design here and there because like on the flying fortresses maybe i never saw a design so i think it was just kind of loosely designed so we were able to whatever add more as we call it gack right gack is just if, if you don't know in the film industry just more stuff more <laughs> crap to make it look detailed yeah you because know? you're gonna see it for a second so on, on top of the flying fortresses they would have like these uh antennas wires whatever so we just duplicate those and add more you know wherever we thought we could add more to make it look more complex um so we were re responsible for doing finished shots and of the flying fortresses. So some people would animate, some people would be modeling. So I was on the modeling UV texturing uh, department and doing renders for, for finished shots. So a smaller studio, you get to wear more hats. So 
Um, that was kind of cool that I got to do that. And then eventually I ended up back at Stan Winston Studios or, or at Stan Winston Studios. And they, he was forming a, a little visual effects department as well. And he, and he had several films that he was producing, Sleepwalkers, Death of, Deaths of Ian, that I got to do wear many hats on uh, for visual effects. Even there was a, I think an Ice Cute or Cuba Gooding Jr. movie with uh, Snow Dogs, like Ape something. Oh, yeah. Um, and we did visual effects shots for that. So I got to animate, light, texture, do like everything, modeling, so, and compositing actually so i really got to experience the visual effects world you know and how it runs in the pipeline um and eventually just loved it just so much easier so much less waste <laughs> you know you see sets being torn apart and the amount of waste there is um it's incredible but um yeah you can do everything digitally these days right so when you're approaching a project like, say, Clash of the Titans or RoboCop, something that's been done before and to the status of being iconic, like, you know, a Ray Harryhausen work or, you know, something like that, do you approach it with trepidation? Are you are you nervous that there might be backlash? I mean, what goes through your mind? Um, yeah, I'm not so much nervous, but it's interesting that you bring that up because um, the Ilang um, Wolf Brigade project um, that we we did recently was exactly what you're saying it's based on a comic um and and there was a film made in japan and i actually asked the producer like how did you come to find me why did you why did you want to include me and he actually google searched for people and he wanted they wanted to use me because they said i did a lot of iconic stuff and kind of modernized it and pushed it uh took uh, uh, iconic images characters and stuff and and helped put them into their modern day films and attract modern audiences i'm like oh i never realized that i never hmm. ever looked back on my work and said oh i, I do a lot of uh whatever that you want to call it <laughs> Re- redos or <laughs> remakes yeah um so so yeah uh i i think i have enough experience now doing that that i'm not not intimidated by it but yes there's characteristic things you look for as to uh what not to alienate the old audience and what helped build the iconic uh character as well as what modern day styles are and design trends that you can add to uh entice the new generation so there's always a balance of that and kind of like um on superman for instance if you and I didn't design a lot of that stuff at all. That that was mainly um, uh, another team. I'm trying to recall all these names. Sorry, <laughs> on, right. on Man of Steel. Um, and we were kind of given designs already, but on previous versions of Superman before it became Man of Steel, I think they tried like five or six times with five different directors, gave them a budget, said, "Let me see your artwork. Let me see what you guys are thinking." So I worked on the Mick G version. Mick G was going to direct it several years ago. Uh, and I think the Brett Ratner version or something. Hmm. Uh, and Tim Burton version. So uh, I got to design the suits and stuff like that. And my philosophy was always, if you kind of can squint your eyes and kind of make out that it is that character, whether it's through the silhouette or the primary colors, 
you're you kind of have free license to change everything else almost it's almost as simple as that yeah um yeah so if you are just redesigning superman and he kind of has a red boots and a red cape and it's controversial whether you want to get rid of the red underwear or not uh you're like uh, can, can this still look like superman you know if you, so that's kind of how the basic i guess um the basic way that i look at it hmm. anyways so for for ilang we did i did the same thing you know it's kind of like okay there's this suit iconically there's you know the red eyes the the german helmet looking thing and, and all these things still holes on the side so you kind of remain true but instead of holes can i make them elongated and make them elliptical or something or ovals instead of this so basically everything's kind of in the right place but you're kind of playing with around with it and you know looking at making it look more tech or more complex i guess suppose right so as long as it captures the spirit of what it's supposed to be then you succeed exactly exactly yeah so along you know they're they're these huge suits right that these guys wear and makes them look their proportions look crazy you know yeah. uh so you want to maintain that as, as a basic structure you know big shoulders big chest you know and black armor and um as far as the rest goes you can kind of play with the details you know right right so so in Man of Steel, is it true that the belt buckle was the hardest part of the costume to design? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, well, for us to create, because um, it, it was designed by other people, but the belt buckle at the time was, was difficult because um, his suit had all these patterns on it. And our job was to take a 2D drawing and make it three-dimensional. And um, why was it so complex? Because it was... Um, we had to create that chainmail pattern, um, and it, it uses a lot of polygons. Um, so, in in the digital world, uh, the more polygons you have on a model, the harder it is for the computer to to even move or perform basic operations. Um, in video games, the polygon models are are very small. The the number of polygons so that it can move, it can react in real time to whatever the player is doing. Of course, as computing power gets more powerful that becomes less and less of an issue. But back then when we were doing Man of Steel, I mean, my computers were only so powerful and I had an army of guys in my living room actually <laughs> helping me Man of Steel because we also had RoboCop going on and we had another project, um, RAPD going on and every single project had an NDA that said, do not have your other crew look at. So at the studio, we had two crews going and then so the only other place is <laughs> I had that guy's at my house. Um, but yeah, we were sweltering in that because the computers were just on all day, all night computing. Oh yeah. And the, the chainmail pattern on the belt buckle was so dense. Um, it was hard to even move the object around on the computer. Cause it was just, you, you turn it and it take a second and catch up. You turn it, take a second. <laughs> and we had to like cut the part on the belt buckle. Then we kind of had to bulge it out a little bit. So we had to manipulate it. So it was hard for, for that, that reason. It was just, so taxing and, and we wanted the level of detail uh so that it would print out with all that detail so that's why it was such a highly high dense polygonal model so wow um that yeah that's why it was difficult <laughs> <laughs> well what crazy stories do you have from men in black one one and two 
Man in Black, crazy stories. Um, I don't know. <laughs> one of the craziest stories on Men in Black was we worked for nine months on, on making the big Edgar bug and they didn't use it or replace it with digital. Oh. So, ah. uh, they, so it was, it, it, I think the digital process, the technology kind of allows the director to be a little more lazy. Like they don't have to make decisions on the spot or anything because they can fix it in post literally. Right. Right. So throughout the process, it was already the world was transitioning the filmmaking world into a digital versus practical world. Whereas digital was going to replace everything. And this was one of the last big practically created monsters, you know, and I'm honored to have been able to work on something like that. I mean, the actual uh, Edgar bug was, I don't know, 13 feet tall or something like that. And we created it using digital technology as well. Um, there was a maquette sculpted and that was scanned and the parts blown up um, in foam. And then we had artists carving, carving the foam to produce all the parts. And it literally took us like nine months of R and D design process. They didn't know what the final bug was going to look like. They couldn't make up their minds. And then I think Rick, and that's the also downfall of practical is like you need months to build something that big. So right. um, Rick had to tell Spielberg and Barry Sonnenfeld, you know, hey, we got to start building. We need to uh, finalize a design. Hmm. So they possibly reluctantly, I don't know, chose, chose a design. It was an amalgamation of many different artists. And actually, I, I did the maquette of the head, which they liked and eventually um, approved of. So uh, I sculpted the head and... Uh, everything created digitally. We made the full version, brought it to set. And I'll agree with them that a lot of the movements they wanted to do probably looked a little robotic, but that's just physics. It's the gravity of the thing, a puppeteer can only do so much. The, you know, it was not hydraulic or anything. So we can only move, make it move in certain ways, I would say. Right. And then the ILM supervisor was there on set, you know, whispering in the director's ear probably the whole time like we could do this in digital oh that looks too fake we can make it in digital we could do it so <laughs> obviously they they shot it a few times for like one day they shot some stuff and then they then it was sitting in the parking lot the rest of the time <laughs> at Warner brothers <laughs> so and then you see the final film and the entire face is different it has big eyes it looks much more cartoony i think the original design maybe they felt was too scary or something like that, because at the time I was this young designer. I didn't want to make anything silly or cartoony, but I didn't realize what the flavor of the film was, and right. the style, and it was so tongue in cheek and comical. And I wanted to do demons and scary things, and uh, so I'm looking back now. That's probably what they were thinking. So, but even Rick mentioned it to, to Barry. He's like, "You don't want to shoot our our Edgar bug that we spent nine months on." we tried to get it in there but uh but yeah that was kind of the the calling you know it's like okay well here it is you know it's like this is how it's going to be and in post you know they can change the design and you know spielberg can say i want eyeballs on it i want it to have a smile i want it to do this and they were able to do all that digital so right 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 and and being a digital artist too i I totally see both sides yeah Oh yeah. 
So when you're watching movies that you, that you didn't, you know, work for or participate in, do you look at them with a critical eye? Like, I'll throw an example out. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, the the prequel they made to John Carpenter's The Thing, my understanding from, from what I've read is that they, it's probably about 80% practical, and then they use computer-generated stuff to sort of clean things up or add blood in where they didn't have it, that sort of thing. Do you, when you're watching movies, do you, are you looking at it with a critical eye? Um, not so much. I mean, I think I used to for sure. And I used to watch films only for, for that reason. And when I was much younger and then as I got older and became an effects artist, yeah, I'd be looking for that stuff. But now at this age, I'm, I kind of want to enjoy the film, but if there's something that's so bad and it stands out, I'll just be like, Oh my God, you know, what do they think? <laughs> But so many effects are so imperceivable these days. I mean, I think the general talent pool and visual effects have come so far that even the average film, uh, they, they know what to do. You know what I mean? They're not they're not learning anymore. They're, it's not a, a completely new industry anymore. So they kind of know what to do, in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah, unless it just stands out like horribly, I haven't even noticed too many things that are even bad these days. Um, I did not see the prequel to the thing yet, but... That's also just my life now with three kids and all that yeah. stuff. I mean, <laughs> all I see these days are like Luca, Pixar movies. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I would I would love to watch horror movies and adult more and adult type stuff. But... <laughs> That's funny. Is it true that you nailed the Catwoman mask on your first day on the Dark Knight Rises? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I was pretty proud of that. Um, the they so they yeah they called me to work on that and i had my own studio already but they said hey you're gonna have to come in uh, to the studio. I said, okay that's okay you know so i i went in met met lenny hemming who's the uh costume designer and uh this guy named graham graham churchill who who was uh running the studio and kind of the foreman and talking to all the artists and he said okay so you're gonna be designing catwoman i'm like damn i wanted to i wanted to design the other guy Bane, you know <laughs> Again, you know, the evil guy, the, the testosterone-filled design. I don't want to work on a girl. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't say that to him out loud. That's what I was thinking. And then they they showed me um, that they had this idea of maybe she could have points on her glasses, right? Like she wears glasses or sunglasses. And they'd have uh, pointy triangles sticking out of, of the front of the glasses. And when she put them on top of her head to hold her hair back, they'd be ears. Right. I'm like, yeah, but that would look so stupid when when she's wearing it on her face. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't have any other ideas at the moment. So <laughs> I was lucky enough that I brought in my computer and I was able to use digital animation tools for what they were meant for. And I was so excited about this, it's like, because I could do an animation, you know, with simple shapes and show them this idea I had. Because I was like, if we hinge it here, we hinge it here, it could actually do this and flip up this way and uh, kind of be these sunglasses on top of the head, but also be hidden when it's on our face. Hmm. So and it's hard to explain that, right? Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to spend my time making a cardboard model or anything. So the computer it's, is the most perfect situation for computer, computer, computer animation. So I quickly sat down, made some primitive shapes, um, had her heads ache. You guys have a head scan of Anne Hathaway? Yeah, okay. Imported that and did it within the first day. 
and Chris Nolan, I think, just happened to be uh, coming down for a meeting. Um, and he, he was visiting costume department daily. And um, I showed it to uh, Lindy, and she's like, oh, that's pretty clever. And then Chris Nolan walked in, and he saw it. He's like, wow, that's really clever. And he goes, I like that. And apparently that that was that was the design from day one. And, and all I did the rest of the time was just kind of make it look more functional and and because uh, it was just primitive shapes at the time right but um That's but awesome. yeah it was, it was kind of weird too because they were having a conversation in front of me about <laughs> how she felt like she wanted she was saddened because she didn't come up with the idea <laughs> and we wanted to take credit for it <laughs> and then Chris Nolan was like well you could just say it was my idea, isn't it? Because the whole film's my idea. Sort of. Like, <laughs> That's as if I wasn't even in the room. Not not this so and so industrial designer, whoever the hell you are. You know, type, of a, type of a feeling. But it didn't matter. You know, it's, it's just like hey, this is how Hollywood is. Right. Right. And, yeah. But I was I was actually very happy with my own design and how it all worked out. And, uh, and I'm just I was ecstatic that. Wow, Chris Nolan liked what I did. Cool. <laughs> That's great. What what is um I found your name attached to a, a movie called Dr. Frankenstein's Journal. Is that even out? I couldn't really find much more information on it aside from like sort of a website about the film and then it lists you as part of the team. Oh, I'm not sure. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm also I've never I've never heard of that. Um, but I'm also attached as an animator to Dext there's some car- kids cartoon thing so and that's not me <laughs> so. oh, interesting. yeah cause it's uh, the website's after-frankenstein.com and um yeah it's like under team it's got judy fox eddie yang gareth davies malcolm winter oh i don't know i've never heard of it um, i suppose <laughs> yeah with the internet these days like i could be attached to anything i suppose anything's possible but yeah I, I i'm not sure what that is to be honest that's hilarious okay um can you tell us about your work on the face shields that you did for the medical personnel and is that still ongoing oh yeah um no it's not ongoing anymore um basically uh, a friend of mine that works in the medical field uh knew what i do um Natalie, she contacted me and said, um, hey, I know you have a 3D printer. And when people hear 3D printer, they're just like, oh, wow, you can make stuff, right? So she's like, I wonder, I was just wondering if you could help with, with the medical field and stuff and, and producing stuff. And I'm like, absolutely. I, I totally just like everybody else at this point in time, you know, I kind of felt like I keep equating it to like World War II and the movement where everybody that could do something would help contribute to the war effort, whether it's, you know, bringing rubber tires or plastics or metal to women going in and, you know, with the Rosie, the riveter and and helping with the war effort. Right. And it was so similar with engineers, anybody that can design or manufacture, there were these forums and everybody was going on them. And like, I absolutely want to help, but I don't know how to do it because I don't want to just walk into the lobby of a hospital and say, Hey, I can make this stuff. And they'd be like, who are you? And there's protocols you have to go through. So I wanted that person that could hook me in and get us through the back door and really make sure that what we make can be useful to people. So she understood exactly what I needed. And she found that person. Her name was Lisa Yen. 
And then she contacted me um, and we started talking and uh, we decided to come up with a plan where we, we would make prototypes and have the doctors come and look at the prototypes just to make sure we weren't wasting our time and that they would actually like them. And then we could go into full production. So we did that, made a few pro prototypes. Um, the studio I was at at the time was uh, called Symbolic Arts Effects and they came there and um, they looked at all the, all the masks and chose what they liked. And I had forgotten, or I hadn't thought about it. I was just so excited about meeting them and having and getting this project going. And, and we had an elderly mother at home and my wife was like, you're going to meet doctors today. Did you, <laughs> did, are you going to be six feet apart? This is like frontline people. I'm like, Oh man, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> so I actually quarantined myself at the studio for like three or four days until we could figure out the plan. Of course, my wife was super pissed at me, but <laughs> we had a, upstairs that she emptied out and everybody moved downstairs and I was quarantined upstairs by myself. And, um, it was a tough thing too because I, I was like she can't be pissed at me because I'm, I'm helping people but at the same time i guess she could be pissed at me <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so so after four days without a shower or anything i, I came home and uh quarantined myself upstairs and she would she made every meal for me put it on a tray it was very sweet and just just so weird that you, you know you don't think about these things but you know it's happening and it's so crazy so anyways we didn't want to invite everybody to the studio to, to put the stuff together so we had to come up with a plan so what we did is we had everybody stay home i put up a facebook post and say hey is anybody interested in volunteering and uh i put there were so many people that actually answered and wanted to help so and i knew everybody's kind of strengths and what they did and made a whole google doc like charts so everybody could see see the spreadsheet and said this person's gonna do this this person's gonna do this we had two people volunteer to be drivers so what they would do is pick up the raw materials take it to one manufacturer as soon as it was done they take it to an assembler as soon as that was done take it to lisa yen's uh place and drop it off so that was kind of the pipeline and it worked out really well and everybody was was amazing um we actually ran out of material. Uh, there wasn't enough uh, PTEG, which was the clear face mask material, uh -huh. uh, because everybody who was capable of making something like this was already ordering material. Uh, okay. So it wasn't a, a bad thing. It was a good thing that so many people were buying it, using it for this purpose. So you knew people were getting protected and doctors and frontline workers. And what Lisa did also that was kind of cool was she – focused on the um not as funded shall we say hospitals um so they couldn't get ppe as readily and even if they could they couldn't afford it necessarily so we made sure to focus on those hospitals and made sure those people got it uh, a priority um and so my partners at symbolic uh robert was awesome he located like plastic in ohio or something and had it shipped Hmm. shipped over so all in all i think we made just under five thousand face shields nice. and i think that was enough and lisa said yeah we're we're good now and the, the numbers were going down and i think this time around the hospitals are smarter and you know have all the stuff in place 
Um, but yeah, what a weird time, man. Just yeah. <laughs> doing all that. But then, then being able to help in something because you feel, I think most people feel helpless and if they could do something, they would, uh, which can be seen by all the online groups. And, and a lot of people were in the industry. It was like Hollywood helps COVID or hospitals or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I just, I just want you guys to know it's not just me. There's so many altruistic people out there and <laughs> I just wanted to do something, you know? So can you tell us a little bit about uh, looting gear? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> So my side hobby is um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I've been doing it since the first UFC back in '94. Um, just to stay in shape, just to you know have some other do something physical, you know that can help you with uh, health things and all that stuff, and and protect yourself and all that stuff. So always been interested in martial arts ever since I was a kid, Bruce Lee, all that stuff. Yeah, and um. So I was training with a friend of mine um, maybe five years ago now, and I hurt my finger. So his knee kind of hit my ring finger, and then my ring finger bent sideways. And I went to an orthopedic doctor, and he buddy taped it. So he taped my fingers together uh, to my to my injured finger, to my good finger, my middle finger. Yeah. And a lot of times when you train jujitsu, a lot of people tape their fingers together as well to prevent injury or they have joint pains or something. And I just did not want to sit there before class taping up my fingers for 10, 15 minutes or however long it takes. And I just like, I can come up with something easier. So I went back to my studio and had one of the um, sewing girls uh, sew up a prototype out of neoprene that was just a finger sleeve that I pull on and I'm done. Right. So I went back to training with this thing and everybody's like, what is that? What is that? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> one guy was a lawyer. He said, if you don't market that thing, I'm going to steal that idea from you. <laughs> so, okay. You know, in a friendly way. So I went to the guy that injured me. His name was Neil. I said, Hey, uh, are you entrepreneurial? Start talking to him. Didn't know him that well at the time. And if you have the time, you want to start a company together and do this because I don't have time. I have three kids and all that stuff. Come come to learn later, he has four kids. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we said yeah. We we uh, got the the name, uh, trademark, and website and all that stuff. Formed the business. Uh, before I knew it, we made thousands of them in Indonesia, I believe, and then started marketing and selling it and. Now it's like a known product. It's just the weirdest thing. It's like I'll see people training with it in foreign countries, and they're like, oh "God, this is so cool!" Wow. Um, just something I kind of wanted to experience. You know, something very different. As an artist, you know, you're always looking for the next thing or yeah. what you can do. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I kind of look look at my life from my deathbed. You know, <laughs> as I tell people. I want to be laying there. I don't want to have any regrets. You know what I mean? I want to experience yeah. so many things. That's why I'm like into so many different things. And uh, this was just another thing. So, I, you know, we patented it. So I actually have a patent. I was so excited. It's very cool. But, but yeah, my partner, Neil, uh, he helped grow the company. He was, he had so many cool ideas and like, Hey, let's sponsor athletes. And so we got to meet, you know, some of our favorite MMA athletes and jujitsu athletes and stuff. And we're just like kids. And it was just like, <laughs> this 
totally different than movies and makeup effects and all that type of stuff. And um, I have to uh, give a shout out to, to my instructor, Jean-Jacques Machado, who was just so supportive from day one. And he's a well-known athlete in this sport. And from day one, just supported us, did a photo shoot with us. And when you attach his name to, to something, it gives it so much more legitimacy. And you're able to succeed so much quicker because people are like, oh, if Jean-Jacques Machado is supporting this, then, you know, this is a, a big deal. Right. Um, and that led to kind of doing um, – so so we wanted to make a commercial. Not not so much for marketing, but, yeah, it's, it's for marketing for sure. And my wife had this great idea. So your product is for fingers. Are there any deaf grapplers? I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's, that's weird because it would be cool if they signed your logo at the end. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So sure enough, my partner already found one. He, he called himself the deaf grappler, Garrett Scott. <laughs> and – we shot a 15 minute uh, biography on him and I learned so much about the deaf community doing it. We flew out to Texas and again, it's just, I have so many interests. Yeah. Now, now I adding producer director to my name and all this right. stuff, but I didn't do it for that reason. I did it because um, I wanted to learn about Garrett. I wanted to uh, promote our product and just seemed like a cool little idea. And these days, you know, you can, get a film crew together. You can shoot something, cut, edit it very reasonably and, and quickly. Um, so we cut it together. And when I saw it, I was like, wow. Yeah. I was, I was not present editing. So this, this other guy named CJ Sato, who's now a, a partner with me for, for film projects. He kept together. He's a brilliant editor and everybody I've showed it to, including myself. When I saw it, is like, you get kind of teary eyed at the end. Because right. he was he was a brown belt and he got his black belt, um, and he got it on video while we were in production on this on this little fifteen minute short. And he he texted me, he said, "Hey, I got my black belt." I'm like, "Oh my god, do you have video of it?" And we cut it in there, and it makes the whole thing. It's almost like a mini film, and you're kind of tearing at the end because you don't hear him speak or anything. He signs he signs you know thank you or I love you to his teacher or whatever, and it's just heartwarming. That's great. So, so we decided to enter it into a short film uh, festival. And we got award after award is crazy. Hmm. So, <laughs> like, oh, wow, maybe we should do more of this. So we're so we're involved now with uh, a documentary based on my my instructor, Jean-Jacques Machado. And I happened to grapple with a film producer. And. He was like, do you have any other ideas or what you guys work on? And I told him. So sure enough, now uh, we, we have a couple other projects too. Uh, one's going to be kind of like an MMA biography, hour-long biography on different MMA fighters. And going to do the same thing with makeup effects people. So these these two projects kind of came out about from just from that. So Nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah. Uh, Super busy. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, yeah. huh? Oh my god. Yeah. So Simon told us to ask you about the Slayer concert that you went to just before COVID. I'm not sure why, but maybe there's a funny story here. <laughs> the Slayer concert just before COVID. <laughs> oh, the last one. Yeah, the last one. We went to a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. So um, no, it was just an incredible experience, and we have 
it, it was one of my favorite bands growing up along with simon and chris and and all that and this was gonna this was their last concert and um we just didn't we were trying every way possible to get backstage or do something uh where we could meet them or, or whatever but um the simon's sister uh anna ended up getting us uh like forum vip passes that wow. was i'm indebted to her to this day um so simon came chris um another friend of ours brian and my wife came and my wife and and brian's wife too and they're just like oh my god going to a slayer concert <laughs> but <laughs> to be fair when my wife and i were dating i took her to an acdc concert and she had nothing she had never even really listened to hard rock or metal or anything like that and then i'm like oh would you ever go to a slayer concert with me she's like yeah sure why not and that was back when we we're dating so now it's like Okay, we're going on a Slayer concert, and then she's like, "Oh God, why? Why did I say I'm going?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so we get into the VIP section, and if you've ever been to VIP at the Forum, you know um, they have dinner there, they have full bar, they have cake, cupcakes, they have a Slayer cake, and it's like <laughs> Slayer farewell tour. They had drinks everywhere but yeah but there was like a cutting board you know like a you go up to the chef and he's cutting you know whatever beef for you and what do you want with your sides and, and holy crap i was spoiled to death i'm never going to see a concert again the normal way yeah because the concert starts and the lights dim like a movie theater like a theater you know and the lights dim and you go to your seats you walk to your seats no hassle and you just had this incredible dinner but all of a sudden we're running into all these celebrities so Bill Burr was there, the comedian. I was like, oh my God, Bill Burr. Ran up to him and he's, oh God, not another one. He's like, (laughs) but he smiled for the camera, thank God. Um, All my childhood metal idols were there, just like uh, the guy from Testament and uh, King Diamond from Merciful Fate was there. I was talking to him. Um, Anthrax, the guys from Anthrax were there. Wow. And then we're waiting in line for, for food. And Jason Momoa was there. Wow. Aquaman. All of a sudden, my wife, her face morphed, just completely changed. I don't know why. <laughs> and my friend's wife, who was with her, I've never even seen that woman smile. Ah. I've never. She's she's a, a DA for, oh, for the county of Los Angeles. I've never even seen her smile. All of a sudden, they transformed into two women that I didn't even recognize. <laughs> and I saw Jason Momoa because I'm like, Jason, can you get a picture of you with my, with our wives? And he's like, Yeah, sure. <laughs> and yeah, it's just that that photo is iconic to this day. It's just like, That's wow, crazy. who are these two ladies? <laughs> they just turn into puddles. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it became like the best concert event ever that they've ever been to. Wow. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was an incredible experience, and I got to do it with Simon and Chris and uh, Brian and my wife, and it was just—it was awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> it was just a good story. Nothing to do with makeup effects. Right. Right. right exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Are there any designs that you've created that ended up not being used, so you've kind of held on to them? Maybe you'll use them another day. Oh, yeah, hundreds, if not thousands. Every designer has that. Yeah. So. You, you, you'll submit stuff that you think they want. And in the beginning, it's kind of like two people trying to learn the same language and the director 
was like, yeah, I told you to make it, you know, sad. I'm like, well, this is my interpretation of sad. Obviously, it's not yours, you know. So you're trying to kind of feel each other out and learn what they react to. So, yeah, through the process, you have to do several designs that are discarded or whatever. And even stuff you love, usually, sometimes you're just like, oh, man, I, I think I nailed it. And they'll look at it and be like, eh, <laughs> you know, more, <Yeah. laughs> more in this other direction. Are you kidding me? So, so yeah, there's every designer in Hollywood has that. Right? And uh, some, some guys are smart enough to put them in books. You know, there's a lot of these oh, yeah. guys that have art books out. And they, they show all the unused designs and things like that. Right. Um, but yeah, everybody has a closet full of those. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Is there a dream project that uh, you'd like to work on someday that you haven't yet? Oh, I think, uh, any kind of Star Wars project would be a dream project. Wow. Uh, I had the opportunity to work on that yet, but uh, if I was still working for Legacy, I think I would be working on Mandalorian. But, oh, wow. um, but yeah, not not yet. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of doing some different things now, as as I mentioned. <laughs> yeah. To you with the, with the film projects, with, um, with a lot of other kind of business things that I want to do, and you know, life is short and that's what keeps me going. I'm just like, Oh my God, I still got to do this. I still got to do this. Right. Right. I should have mentioned, by the way, at the, at the top of the show, the intro we gave you that could double as an obituary. So if you need that, you can have it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's still more to come. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Uh, one last question here and then we'll wrap things up. Are there any, is there a person or people in the industry that you haven't worked with yet that you would love to? Um, yes, absolutely. And, uh, I'm being put on the spot right now, so I can't think <laughs> of it. And then I'm sure when we say goodbye, I'm like, oh yeah, this guy. Right, right, uh, right. But, but the people that I have been able to meet, oh my God, Steven Spielberg, um, uh, incredible. I met him on the ring. I met him, met him black. Um, James Cameron, one of my all time idols, just, uh, got to meet him several times. I got to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jim Carrey, these these incredible actors, Eddie Murphy. Um, So, yeah, I've met quite a few incredible people. Um, But, yeah, this guy guy that I'm thinking of is so famous, and so I want to meet him so badly I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) We've got something in the works uh, coming up in the next few months where we're going to do a video series where we get people such as yourself to come back on the show and, and tell us like some hilarious uh, Hollywood stories of actors you've met or producers, directors, oh, nice. whatever. So you're, you're more oh. than welcome to come back for that. Oh, did you think I of remembered it? who it was? Yes. Who? <laughs> and the reason I can't remember is, is because I met him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. No, not, not somebody like Spielberg or anything like that, but this comedian named Anthony Jesselnik. Okay. And I've heard of him. He, yeah. Called the Prince of Darkness because his humor is so dark, and I'm really into comics. Mitch Hedrum, uh, uh, Stephen Wright, like yeah. and obscure comics too, like Jeff Ross, like people who roast really well. Yeah. Um, but recently, we've been going to so many comedy shows, and I just love his character and what he's doing. So he he 
takes the most offensive PC, non-PC subject matter and makes it funny, but so dark. So <laughs> if, if anyone ever listens to him, they'll be like, oh my God, Eddie, I didn't think you were like this type of, it, it's, it's not that at all. He just, the way he thinks and his misdirection and his timing, it's just like, I'm never going to meet this guy. You know, um, <laughs> I trained jujitsu with, with a comedian, Russell Peters. Um, and he's got a lot of Netflix shows and all this stuff. And I was always trying to drop hands. I was like, hey, do you know Anthony Justin? Like, without being insulting to him. Right, right. <laughs> everybody has an ego. But, um, but so he started doing these shows down in Hollywood at this place called Stardust. And he was there like every night. So uh, we went one night and there he was in the, in the corner uh, waiting to go on stage. I didn't know he was waiting to go on stage at the time, but my wife and I like, oh my God, let's go say hi to him. And we went, I'm like, can I get a picture with you? And I said, yes, but I'm going on next. And I promise you after I get awful. And th- that already sounded like he was a cool guy. And sure enough, afterwards, you know, took a photo with us. Nothing like his character on stage. Huh. So humble, so appreciative to his fans and stuff like that. And um, just really, really cool. Wow. It's a weird thing, weird person to want to meet, maybe because he's not like hugely popular. But, um, but yeah, nevertheless, somebody I, I wanted to meet, and I, and it was fulfilled. So, <laughs> hey, who knows? Maybe you could collaborate with him, do an animated series, you know, like a, a Duckman kind of thing or something, <laughs> where it's you his, never know his voice and I, his jokes. You know, <laughs> I just think comedians are, you know, you, you got to have a certain level of intelligence and, and and wit and stuff to be able to do that, yeah. and they're all well read. Um, they're all extremely intelligent. I think that's kind of why I like them so much. I don't know, but, but yeah, that was, that was my, my one thing. <laughs> well, there you go. You did mention some of your documentaries. Do you have any projects that you want to plug? Um, yeah, I mean, they're still a little bit way, a uh, ways off, but, um, they're, they're going to be coming out and I'm trying to keep it under wraps a little bit. Yeah. Um, but other than that, um, maybe I can come back and plug some things at another time. <laughs> Absolutely. But no, no, I'm all I'm all good at the moment. And if you want to know more about me, just go to my website, deitycreative.com. Um, yeah, but thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, thank uh, thank you for being here. You got an open invitation to come back whenever you want. Awesome. Thank you guys. Cool. All right. Well, there's tons of stuff obviously that we didn't get to, so yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it again in the future. Thanks for coming on the show, Eddie. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care. care. Well, folks, I want to thank you for joining us on the special Filmmakers series, currently available only for our Patreon listeners. And thanks for subscribing to Patreon, which helps and is now to continue on. And please Spread the word about Then Is Now podcast. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. And Then Is Now is also on YouTube. You can visit youtube.com slash user slash death one to get the latest videos as well as our other fun videos. And please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcasts with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. You can find me at storiesmotion.com. There you can find many of my films. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Stories of Motion. 
Awesome, awesome. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And don't forget to go, if you like this episode, don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review. That way more listeners can find us. We are on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Chris, thank you for joining me again on this episode. Thank you as always. And class dismissed. This Now Podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.